I tend to say that the security team is kind of like a seatbelt. It's not the seatbelt that prevents you from driving 900 kilometers an hour, but it is the thing that will keep you safe if something bad would happen. And the seatbelt in a spaceship looks really, really different from the seatbelt in a car, but they both have the same function of keeping the driver and the vehicle safe. I've never met a developer that comes to work and says, you know what, I don't care about security. But what they are classically lacking is the ability to make what they're already doing visible and seen. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning back into the show. Uh, today we have a great guest, you know, a, a CISO, a security pony, and many other things. We're going to talk about that in a sec. Uh, we have Siren uh, Hofander on our show. Thanks for joining us, Siren. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so, Siren, before we dig into sort of the topics that we, you know, like there's a lot for us to, to discuss, tell people a little bit about, you know, who you are, how you got into security, and kind of what you do, you know, these days. So... I got into security a long, long time ago. All of my friends at the time were developers and I was the only girl and I was a difficult child in the difficult teenage years and they were all developers and it turned out that I was really good at puzzles. And so I got into kind of finding where they missed things, so to speak, which I later learned was pen testing. And so I kind of fell into it because I liked making fun of my friends' mistakes. So it wasn't really like a glorious... It was just the fact that I was a brat. I started as a pen tester, became a systems administrator. So I was, you know, turning on people's lights at three in the morning and super cranky and super salty. And I, as many people do, I got really lucky. And I knew a guy who knew a guy that was looking for a blue team security person. And I came in that way through luck. And I started on secure development because I knew a guy that knew a guy. And I am unbelievably further lucky that the guy who, who took me on from like my crazy red team backgrounds was like a saint and kind of like tamped down my rather wilder sides and helped me to fall in love with kind of the blue team and building things from a secure perspective. I was really tired of finding the same bugs over and over again. And it got to a point where you feel like you're kicking someone that's laying down. It broke my heart. So I, I did that, um, worked at ClickTech. Securitas, Verishore, I did their alarm systems. I was their product head for the Northern mm -hmm. Systems. From there, I went over and I got into like the digital medical space. And I was a CISO for a company called Dockly Mindokto for a couple of years, mm -hmm. which was super cool. And I've recently just left that and I've started a secure development consulting team, which is actually super cool. There are a lot of companies that can't really afford to have an entire security team. Yeah. So I've set up kind of a you know, you can hire a team where you hire chunks of time from a range of capabilities as opposed to having to find, you know, we need 30 different skill sets from 30 different people and it's, you know, a year later and you're still not done. So I'm continuing my journey of trying to help people stand up. Perfect. So I think um, maybe maybe we start from the approach, you know, we start from people, not from uh, 
uh, the tech or maybe from like job definition aspect of it. So when you talk about doing security, you mentioned blue team kind of going into protection or sort of defense versus the uh, just the one finding holes. You talk about uh, versus maybe the pen testing, the red teams. What is it that security teams do even in the first place? You know, How would you even define the job? I would actually avoid defining the job because I think a lot of the problems become from a definition because security has kind of suffered from being something that a certain set of people do, whereas security is found in everybody's job and everybody has a little bit of security in their job because everyone understands that, you know, these are the risks within my particular function. So if you expand on that to take the security team's job, I would say it's helping people to find and identify the risks within their own areas and being kind of a supporting function for them in that journey. And that looks different if you're helping, you know, the finance team or if you're helping the office administrator or if you're helping a developer, but the function is the same. You're helping somebody else become more risk aware and to treat those risks in a relevant manner. How you do that can vary vastly and it should vary vastly. It's the one size fits all. We're going to document the problem to death or we're going to scare you to death with our pen testers that has made it really, really, really difficult. So I tend to say that the security team, it's kind of like a seatbelt in a car or a seatbelt in general. It's not the seatbelt that prevents you from driving 900 kilometers an hour, but it is the thing that will keep you safe if God forbid something bad would happen. And the seatbelt in a spaceship looks really, really different from the seatbelt in a car, but they both have the same function of keeping the driver or the passenger in the vehicle safe. And is it the security team's job to sort of help you build the seatbelt? Or are you the seatbelt? Like, you know, how much would you say when you are the security team, how much are you kind of advising and consulting and, uh, and making people aware of the risk versus kind of hands-on creating, providing tooling, doing some of that work? I think in a utopian scenario, we would be helping other people to create their own seatbelts because everybody's an expert in their own particular area. And the best seatbelt is always going to be the one that's the best suited for the context in which it's in. That being said, security's done a really, really poor job of marketing how awesome it is. So a lot of the hands-on stuff, a lot of the hands-on know-how, it just isn't there. And so currently the reality is I do a lot of stuff with automation. We do a lot of stuff with infrastructure. We do a lot of stuff with configuration and training and risk awareness and documentation. But in a utopian state, I want to be the person helping somebody else to make a seatbelt because one of the things that's always really bothered me with security is the fact that there's always been an idea of, well, you have to know this much to be secure. And just saying that, it means that we're saying that, you know, some people are unworthy of security. And I like the seatbelt analogy because a seatbelt doesn't say it has to be a good or a bad driver or a good or a bad person driving the car. The level of security should be the same. And I really dislike the idea of we're going to blame the user, we're going to blame the whoever it is for not doing something. An agnostic consulting role is the ideal state. The reality is I have literally picked up someone's dry cleaning to help them, you know, have more time to do security. I have, you know, written YAML files. I have done automated testing. I will literally clean your bathroom because the end goal should be a more secure system. So I'll do whatever it is. You're very much describing kind of security as, as indeed this sort of supporting entity. Yeah. You know, oftentimes in many organizations, you know, it's not like that, you know, like people are security is, is the big stick, right? It's the, uh, you know, the one kind of beating you down on the head when you misbehave versus something that's looking to uplift you. You know, you've got like security pony handle, you know, you're very much, you know, about sort of positive security 
how is that different? You know, like how do you approach kind of implementing this notion of support or sort of positive security uh, when you work with development teams? So I've led a couple of teams and I've always said that our job is always going to be to keep showing up because security has done such a poor job of marketing and it's taken such an aggressive kind of offensive tone for a really long time that people are afraid of what we do. And we can see that as it's not fair and we can kind of scream into the night or we can be the person that's constantly showing up, picking up your dry cleaning. Because if our end goal is to have a secure system, then that has to be an agnostic approach. That can't be, I'm only going to do it if you're nice to me, because that's not an agnostic approach. And so you have to be able to give people space to be afraid of what you do because they come from history. So it's constantly showing up with, okay, so this is where the problem is, and this is how I'm going to help you to fix it. And to be looking for a context and looking for something to make that person feel like you're there to help them. Because that is truly what the securities function is. We are there to help, but we've done a poor job of presenting that help. We've kind of hidden it behind pen testing and documentation and being the big stick. Whereas if you look at a lot of the really, really big security fails, I can guarantee that there were people on the inside that knew about those that were too afraid to go to the security team or to tell somebody. And so they became worse than what they needed to be. Had they had a culture of, hey, if you see something, say something, we're here to help you, we can do this together. I think a lot of those could have been handled in a much better way. And how do you, so practically speaking, when you run, how do you handle, you know, what the typical size delta, right? Like typically there's one security person to many. Like if I focus on developers, you know, because that's kind of the, the, the core principle, but, you know, many employees, but also specifically many developers, how do you do that? I mean, if you come along and you, you know, like you can only pick up laundry or sort of dry cleaning for uh, so many developers, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, like, let's say the ratio is like one to a hundred developers, probably. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest areas I see that people are, or security teams fail is that they try and apply more security onto a development team that probably is overburdened as it is. Even if it is a hundred people, they're working full time. They're already doing something full time. So you need to find ways of, of like scooching security into what they're already doing rather than trying to give them, hey, we're going to run static code analysis in a tool that's going to slow down your build with X amount of minutes, that's going to have an extra process, that they're not going to be able to see any return on investment or anything that actually helps them. So rather than trying to take kind of a standardized approach, you can do a lot of really good security tests in unit testing. You could use dev tools. You can use a lot of the tools that developers are already using. And rather than take kind of these are our, you know, square Excel requirements, you can look at what they're already doing and manipulate security requirements to reflect that better. Because I guarantee that a lot of development teams are already doing a lot of security work already. The problem is it's not visible. So, you know, they might have really good session handling, despite the fact that there aren't any security session requirements have been written. Why don't you write those requirements and kind of bring that effort that's already being done to the light of their managers, to the, you know, their bosses, whoever the case may be. Because it's never the case that it's 100 people that think clear text is awesome, MD5 is the way to go, and, you know, whatever, throw it over. That's not the case. But the work that they're already doing should be made visible so that they can get credit for something they're already doing, as opposed to showing up and being like, all of the standard security tools aren't here. The standard way of working isn't here. Therefore, you're doing nothing because that's simply not the case. And it sets you up for an immediate adversarial relationship because I've never met a developer that comes to work and says, you know what? I don't care about security. I'm never going to do anything. I just, you know, 
I want it all to be wrong. That's not the case. But what they are classically lacking is the ability to make what they're already doing visible and seen. So I think um, I understand it really to the notion of like a celebrating the work of developers, you know, for the good security they do. Maybe let's sort of hone in on that and then later kind of back out and talk about the kind of tips and tricks on, you know, how do you prioritize? Give us some examples of like, how have you celebrated success? Like you highlight the, you know, whatever their session handling or the likes. Give us some, a few other examples of uh, this positive mindset. Well, we have cake for no reason day. So we've had, we've had cake for all the things that didn't happen <laughs> because, you know, the system didn't fall over. So let's celebrate that. I am a big fan of trying to spread knowledge in a way that people actually understand. So one of like the prides of my life is developers when they've made a bug and I've kind of helped them to see how to do it, that I see it come up in a code review at a later state and they're helping another developer, you know, to not make the same mistake and not involving my team at all because they're like, oh, you know, I'm never going to write this open redirect again. And rather than, oh, you have to talk to the security team, you have to do this, you have to do that, they're taking ownership of that issue and making sure that the next person in line doesn't make that same mistake. And so I make sure that when I talk about, you know, security success, I don't talk about my team. I talk about, you know, the person in the development team that found the security bug. Hey, did you know that such and such had this really good idea? How can we make sure that such and such really gets time for this idea? Because it needs to be highlighting their work first because we're a supporting function and that's not an ego thing. It's not an us versus them. It's us together where what we're bringing to that environment initially is the ability to highlight somebody else's skill because a lot of the time what's stopping development teams is a confidence. Taking that first step is really, really difficult because there has been a lot of negativity and it is, you know, it's the buzzword. It's the cool thing to do. So no one really wants to like raise their hand and be like, this is something I already do unless they have a lot of, either courage or craziness, or they're like on the dedicated security team because somebody could call them out and that's a really difficult thing. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is kind of give them the confidence to say, hey, you know, I'm already doing this and it may be small, but at least it's something. This is also something where you can come in and say, okay, management is saying we have all these requirements, but the development team gets no extra minutes to train, to learn, to do anything let's use our big stick for good and go beat up on the management to actually give them time to do it. Yeah, understood. So all this it really all boils down to like being the developer's champion, which is a, exactly. you know, is, is a very positive thing, you know, kind of highlight their work. How do you equip your team to help? Because you described things like, you know, getting down to sort of write, you know, unit tests or, or even like uncovering a bunch of these things that you're, yeah. you know, they're doing. Would you hire more coders or more pen testers in terms of backgrounds, like to a security team that has that approach? I would hire the person with empathy. I think I've hired a lot of people and the first quality I always look for is empathy. And so if you're a pen tester, if you're a coder, I've hired really good people that can't code at all, but still work really, really well with development teams. But it has to be a person with empathy that's willing to kind of pick up the dry cleaning because as a supporting function, we have to keep showing up. And so it might take three months for the development team to kind of like lower their guard and really let us in. But once that's done, you can have a, you know, year after year positive relationship with that team. But it means you have to keep showing up for three months and making sure that you kind of worm your way into processes that may already be there. And it also means that you can't be the type of person that, and here's where I see a lot of people that come from the really, really offensive side. You know, this cross-site scripting bug, it's really, really, really bad. 
But if it costs more to fix than the bug actually exploits, then beating the developer over the head with it is never going to be a positive. Yeah. I don't think I have like a standard, you know, that it has to be this type of person. I think it has to be a person with a lot of empathy and that's willing to kind of go the extra mile to solve the larger issue. So this is inside the organization, right? We've kind of identified three parties here so far, right? We talked about the the security team having high empathy and having, you know, whatever is right in your constellation, a variety of skills to be able to apply that empathy and, and help out. And then you have management that might need that stick still in the notion of like, you know, hey, you need to make time and budget for this because this matters. Yeah. And then you've got the developers who are sort of looking to celebrate because they've got, you know, enough work on their plate as is. So you want to kind of highlight successes versus focus on failures. What about the compliance bit? You know, what do the auditors think about this type of approach? Like when an external entity comes along with their stick, you know, <laughs> how does that translate into the surrounding? So I actually really like compliance work. And I think compliance is another area where it's kind of been misappropriated for big stick people and people that can kind of, I'm going to be really generalizing here, but can kind of hide their lack of work behind a really big pile of documentation. And so to go back to kind of my, my seatbelt example, compliance is the thing that says the seatbelt has to go over the person and has to be like connected to the car and actually has to work when the car stops. All of those are compliance regulations written from the law. If they didn't exist, it would be good enough to kind of stretch my example a little bit further to throw a seatbelt in through the window of the car. That is the end of the story. And there's no one that I can think of that thinks that's a good solution for a seatbelt. Yeah. Compliance kind of has this, oh, you know, you show up in the tie and you're kind of a jerk. And I know a lot of compliance people that are like that. And to them, I say, peace be on you. I'm not here for that. But compliance can also be, hey, let's make sure that we take, you know, the integrity and privacy of our own staff seriously. Let's make sure we take the banking information that they give us in consideration. Let's make sure we treat their health data correctly. And a lot of these compliance rules aren't actually written as you must do this thing in all circumstances always. That's not what it says. It says based on the risk. And so a lot of what you can do with development teams, you can actually do at a company because it's based on the risk. So it's a lot of, are you aware of what you're actually doing? When I did pen testing, one of the things that actually was like the greatest return on investment was these are the systems you have. Like a lot of companies don't know what systems they are actually using. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be like a, you know, a huge <gasps> moment. That should be like, yes. And so if you have, you know, packets that are super vulnerable, as long as you know about them and are treating them with due care, that's probably going to be okay. Yeah. I guess that's another aspect of the security team or whoever it is that's handling compliance because, you know, you have that perspective and you apply that perspective internally. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, the auditor that comes in to audit your company you don't necessarily like have as much choice. So you need to sort of have like basically somebody needs to sort of explain and bridge those gaps. And that's basically the security team needs to be able to match those risk elements and explain that. Even if that conversation is a little bit more complicated than, yes, I put this breaking thing or this kind of a hard constraint uh, into my development process. Exactly. And the benefit of showing up and kind of being a supporting function is that if you have a positive relationship with your developers and your QA staff, they're going to tell you where all of like the dirty bodies are buried. And so when you're sitting there with an auditor, and I've sat with a couple that are, shall we say, less friendly and less solutions oriented, you can definitely make sure that you present information in a way that 
caters to the audience you're speaking to. It comes back to the empathy I was talking about. Their job and they're risking, you know, their own certification if they certify a company that's, you know, wild and crazy. So how can you make their job easier? They're probably not technical. So sitting with a giant dump file of a configuration isn't going to help them, but walking them through how the configuration file is created, how you make it safe, the training the staff has, it's going to make them feel like, yes, this is a company that knows what they're doing. So they'll lower their defenses as well. There are jerks out there, you know, but I would say that the broad mass of compliance people that I know, they just want to make sure that they're doing their job. They're not there to eat you either. So I would say compliance, it's a natural part of my job, but it should be a natural part of everybody else's job too, because no one just tosses a seatbelt through the car window and is like, done. No one does that. Yeah. So this is this is kind of a you know an exciting scenario or kind of model to to run on. What are the primary challenges you came across, you know, when you were implementing this or or that you see around, you know? And I guess what solutions? I think there were there were two major ones. I think the first one was it'll never happen to us ever because it never has. Which, first of all, most companies wouldn't know. And second of all, isn't a good indicator of anything. Yeah. And that's a really, really difficult one, especially if you're working with teams where it's the developers who've written like the first lines of code and it is their baby and they will defend it as if it is their child. And the second one is we say it's really important, but it's not important enough to get time, budget or emphasis in any real way from anybody. Yeah. So let's get to solutions for those effects. So the first one was more developer-oriented. I mean, what have you seen to be successful? I think it's it's not even developer-oriented, but let's focus on the developers because they're more interesting. I would say it's you just kind of don't even like go into the argument of it'll happen or it won't. Like I don't even engage in that argument because I don't have a crystal ball or magical powers, no matter what myths about me exist. I would say it's more, I go from a hygiene factor of, Assuming that this is a thing that could happen, how can we tackle it to make sure it's less crappy if it does and go at it from a problems perspective rather than a probability? So if you look at cross-site scripting, you can do a lot of that with framing and validation frames. So how can we make sure that the traffic that's passed from endpoint to endpoint, whatever the case may be, goes through a filter and make it easier so that rather than you have to validate every input, you can do it from a framing perspective or from a backend perspective and make it a development architectural question rather than you know a, a point of this is where this particular bug is. Because then it immediately goes from a, we're solving something that could possibly happen to we're making our product better. It happens to be cross-site scripting for me. And that'll probably be what I may emphasize in a report or whatever the case may be when I'm talking to an auditor. But if I'm talking to a developer, I want to give that person a problem that they understand and are passionate about, which is, you know, craftsmanship. It could be hygiene. It could be performance. It could be the latest tech. I had a really interesting conversation the other day about authentication and serverless systems where we were looking at kind of security requirements from authentication, but the system was serverless. So how could we have a threat model for that where it had absolutely nothing to do with the security bug that I'd found? It was, you know, assuming that we are going to do this, how could we do it better? Because if it gets into a crystal ball, that'll never happen. You can look at risk forecasting. You can make some really educated guesses. The problem becomes if it doesn't happen, you're going to become, you know, the little girl who cried wolf. But a key risk, haha, is you have to be really careful and pick your battles. And it can't just be, oh, top 10 says it can't just be 
the latest exploit on Twitter. It can't be my friend who does. It has to be something that actually delivers value. And you have to be really, really careful that you don't become, you know, the latest glittery security, whatever it is, can't be everything that you jump on. Yeah. Do pen tests come in there? Like, you know, is this notion of saying, well, this is a real problem here. We've observed it on your code. Do you need that? Or is that kind of too little too late? I think pen tests are interesting and I think they're more often than not poorly used. Pen testing should be a validation of the flow from requirement to production rather than kind of an end state check of like, this is everything because it's not like a pen test. You can take the most talented pen tester in the entire world with all of the tools ever, but you're paying that consultant for a time period. And if that person has a bad week, they're looking in the wrong place. They can find things, but they may not be the right things. And so if there's an overemphasis on pen testing in kind of a black box or a blind state, it can give you an overconfidence in security. And you could also wind up fixing bugs that aren't actually problems. You know, oh, we found this super exploit on a system that's going to be killed in three weeks. That's not relevant. Or, you know, it's a system that, you know, only two people have access to. And we know that because they have FIDO keys and it's only this, that, and the other thing. There are lots of, and I know there's just the Yubico exploit that came out the other day, but the amount of effort to exploit that bug is so high Mm -hmm that it might not be worth it to actually fix. What you can do with pen tests, which can be really interesting, is we have had an emphasis on validation from an architectural perspective. Let's use pen tests to actually test the validation and verify the work that has been done in that architectural principle of validation for input fields, for example. How good was that work? Because then the bugs that can come up, it can be, all right, so we use Blue Monday, for example. Did that actually work? Yes or no? Because then it's not in, you know, the hacker out in Wonderland, it's the developers that were trying to fix this architectural problem missed this particular part. How can we make this more practical and more focused on what's actually relevant for them? Yeah, okay, interesting. So, and I guess kind of in this context, I think about bug bounties sometimes as this like less focused, but constant, you know, it's almost like a, I sometimes think of them as like a, a pingdom for security uh, results. No, they wouldn't be like a pingdom. They wouldn't necessarily represent the user experience. You know, they don't necessarily, uh, but they're a bit of a barometer, I guess. How do you feel about bug bounties? Do you find them helpful, not helpful? How do you contrast them to pen tests or Reddit team activities? I've run bug bounties, both public and private. And a few years ago, I think they were really great. I think now they have been oversold and they've monetized bugs in a way that's just, I don't see it as sustainable because they're, you know, for a cross-site scripting bug. If that's the incentive of finding the bug, what is the incentive of the developer? Fix that bug three minutes or he or she can go home and earn $900 for not fixing it. The economy of the bugs just becomes completely unskewed. And there's been so much marketing around it that you get a lot of people coming into the bug bounty space that aren't ethical and that kind of have wild, you know, I'm going to make crazy money but don't spend the time looking for like the crazy bugs. And so it becomes, I'm going to blackmail your company. And all of that time to handle those people, to handle the PR, to handle that person, all of those hours from the security team cost something. And so it could be a really good way to kind of do responsible disclosure and to give the security community uh, a safe and a sane way to report in bugs. But I think right now it's been so overly buzzworded that it's become really, really damaging. I think it's also because there's been kind of an overemphasis on that. If you look at the budgeting for bug bounties, when they first came out, it was super easy to get budget. 
But now it's been a few years and it's super hard to get budget for bug bounties because the bugs are coming in, but they can't be tied back to requirements. They can't be tied back into you know business investment. They can't be tied back into strategy stuff because it's random bugs. So why are you paying for them? It can be an awkward conversation if your management team isn't technical security and most of them aren't. And so it's a hard one to sustain, but I like the idea. Yeah, interesting. I guess maybe it's just an evolution element, what you're describing around, like, how do you define the scope for which you'll get paid? Exactly. Or the, the type of activity. And I guess maybe that's indeed kind of going up and down, both on the tooling side, but mostly on the sort of community to company interaction. Like I said, I've worked with many bug bounty people. I know a lot of researchers, and I, I think responsible disclosure is something that's really good. And I know a lot of people that report in because they genuinely just want to help Mm-hmm. a company to fix good problems and giving them a safe and a sane way to do that. I am all for it. So I think, uh, you know, we talked a fair bit here, you know, like if I just wrap up in the meantime, you know, is to say, you know, we talked about empowering developers really to the security. So just really, I think that's maybe the strongest theme here is around, you know, the security team as a supporting entity and just like, you know, like running a startup here, you know, this is a, this is very kind of near and dear to my heart because we have the same conversations about, you know, the finance organizations or any IT organization or any, or even like the people or sort of HR people organizations, you know, they're really important entities, but their job is to help everybody else do their job better. So kind of taking that angle to security is kind of helpful, help developers celebrate their successes more than like bashing them on the head. Uh, you get a bunch of good examples of it. Uh, have the security team have high empathy to be able to achieve that. You know, I guess kind of all rolls into that. And then think about uh, kind of practical application of that in the context of, of software quality, of functionality and correct architecture or feature building you know, for your systems as opposed to just fixing a, a pointed bug that happens to be a vulnerability. So I think all of those are great, great advice. You know, thanks for sharing that. So maybe like teeing up a little bit, you know, you're doing the security consultancy now, right? A bunch of companies don't have, you know, indeed, the, either the, I don't want to say that they don't have the budget for it. Maybe they just haven't chosen to hire it. There's a certain scale of budget that indeed they might just not be able to afford, but they haven't yet built up a security team. How do you see that work? Is that a part of what you're trying to do with this consultancy? Yeah. So I think a lot of companies, not only do they not have the budget, but they don't even really understand what they're looking for. And you see this with a lot of small to medium to startups. And it's kind of, we know we're supposed to be doing something. So, you know, the first hire, who should that person be is a really, really difficult question because it's okay. Well, we've, if we pick a technical person, they're immediately going to be overwhelmed and they're not going to have the time to do the compliance, you know, the GDPR, the larger program awareness training. But if you pick just a compliance person, all of the technical stuff may not be possible. And so it becomes kind of this weird, we're looking for the magical unicorn that has 18 arms and that can do all of it, which is just an absurd, I mean, I'm sure that person exists, but Google or someone else has probably hired them. Where the truth is most companies need a, a wide range of skill sets because there are a wide range of problems that need to be tackled. And so I've set up a team where it's, you know, we have security developers, we have security architects, we have people that are really good with encryption, you know, with RF stuff. But we also have people that can do compliance, we have people that can do requirements, you know, the program, my C-level, I can talk board. And so rather than set a company in the position of, okay, we need, you know, we need something. Now we have to spend six months trying to find, you know, these 20 people. It's a team that can kind of help them stand up on their own two feet. Yeah. Not company two feet. To figure out what that means for them. And that might be 
a team of people that might be consulting with other companies to have that help over time. I think that security can look really, really different for everybody. It doesn't have to be, it must be this type of person. It must be this skill set. And it is kind of that one size fits all approach. That means it's really, really hard to start because so many people assume it must be a hire. And I think for, for some companies, that's probably not true. Yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting angle and, and frankly kind of goes hand in hand with that perspective on the, uh, on the support entity. Because when you talk about, you know, hey, you're too small to have a CFO or, you know, you're too small to have like an HR person full time, you know, that's a bit more arguable given you always have people. But, but still, a lot of companies kind of take that approach. Definitely a lot of companies outsource IT. And if you're not there, then if you have that notion of like, this is a GNA function or sort of like, you know, a general sort of supporting entity that you need over here, you know, why not have things that scale before you're able to either hire or fully staff uh, that full team? Exactly. I mean, and I've hired a lot of people and then I am the type of person that I want to be somebody that's helping other people to stand up. And I know a lot of people in security kind of have that mindset. And so I think that it's a good way to kind of enable them to help people in a productive manner. You know, security is a hard job. And so it's hard to be the first person at a company because you get overwhelmed and burnout is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And so by having different options that, hey, if you want to, you know, help people, you can do this type of work because this can't be the only consulting security mm -hmm. team out there. You know, I'm not I'm not that genius. There have to be more. But I think the more options that people have to have security within their company, the better. Yeah, I do think it's a, a newish model in, in the sense of like uh, smaller companies. I mean, I think the notion of like before you hired is not one that is typical. And I don't know if that's attributed to like new approaches or just the rise of profile of security. People just sort of appreciate they need to do security more. I think security has been like buzzworded and now it's kind of, you know, GDPR scaring everybody and, you know, public cloud and all of this stuff. So, yeah, I think it's it's a newish model, but yeah. I'm hoping that it, it makes the community better. Yeah, and I think to an extent, you know, GDPR, another one that sort of, you know, sometimes is often sort of spoken in a, in a negative sense, in the sense that it, uh, it created a lot of FUD. But at the end of the day, it's the thing that forces you to build the right seatbelt as well, right? Like it's a, it, it has all the right intention and it has mobilized an industry that has been waiting yes. and procrastinating on a bunch of these things, right? Exactly. I mean, I love GDPR. It has a lot of things that are wrong with it, but the intention with the law is good. Yep. If the security teams can kind of help people focus on the intention of, hey, this will give us more time to do privacy work. I think most developers are excited about being able to do things well. I don't think anybody wants to, you know, mishandle people's information. You know, we can use this as a, the ability to give them time to do that. Yeah, indeed. Cool, Sarah. This was a great conversation. We're already, you know, as expected, kind of going a little bit, uh, a little bit over time here. Before I let you go, uh, I like to ask every guest coming on the show if you have kind of one bit of advice or sort of one pet peeve or something you want to give or tell a team that is looking to level up their security. What would that be? Start small. Don't add extra tools. Don't add extra processes. Don't do any of that. Go and look at ASVS and MASVS, which are kind of standard security development requirement set. And look to find the security that they're already doing and find ways to highlight that. Because otherwise they're just going to get super like conference burned out. I'm going to do this. And then they're not going to have time to do it and just never do it again. So spend time to find and emphasize the work that's already being done and build on that instead. Then you can add all like the cool tools later. Yeah, love that. Super practical. Well, Sarah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and thanks everybody for tuning in and join us for the next one. Bye, everybody. That's all we have time for today. 
If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.